thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Hello and welcome to an episode called Ask the Naturopath where I answer real life questions from real life listeners. I'll be dropping one of these episodes in every few weeks so if you have a burning question that you would like answered by me simply submit it to hello at julesgalloway.com and you never know I may just feature it on the show. Now, I need to mention quickly that my answers are intended as a guide only. They're not a replacement for a real-life consultation with a qualified practitioner. However, having said that, I hope to give you some powerful tools to help you kick things off in the right direction and give you actionable steps that you can start today. My first question today comes from Demetra, and Demetra asks... I'd be interested in figuring out if I have a food intolerance as sometimes I think I do when I eat certain foods and other times I seem fine eating the same food. Is there anything to look out for? Demetra, that's a really awesome question and it's an issue that I've also experienced myself when I was trying to figure out what food intolerances I had. It can be quite confusing and it is true that sometimes you can have a food intolerance and get away with eating a little bit of some foods and then other times you just get smacked around by the same thing. So there are lots of factors as to why this might happen. So I'll just talk you through a few of them first of all. So first up It has a lot to do with the health of the gut. If you've got a really good balance of bacteria in there, if everything's humming along really nicely, then you may be less likely to react when you eat that food. Now, on the flip side, if you have got some parasites going on or you've had some recently, if you've got some candida going on that's a bit in overgrowth or you've had some of that recently, then you may be more susceptible when you eat this food because the health of the gut, the balance of good bacteria versus the not so good bacteria, that might be out of whack. And if that's out of whack, then you are going to be more likely to have this food intolerance rear its ugly head. Now, there are other factors as well. Uh, Things like it really depends on how much of the actual food that you eat. So I know personally... I react to gluten, as do a lot of people out there. And I know that if I have a bit of a croissant once every now and again, I'll usually get away with it. And people know that I actually have a bit of a joke with some of my friends like, oh, this is my three-monthly croissant. I'm not going to have another one for three months. So if I do eat something like that, I am going to savor the hell out of it because it's not very often I get to eat something like that. And then if I do eat that... I definitely, definitely won't be eating any other gluten that day, that week, or probably even for a couple of months. If I was to go and eat a few croissants in one sitting, or even say a slice of bread, which has more flour and therefore more gluten in it, I'm more likely to get a tummy ache, headache, and react in other ways as well. My energy levels will suffer, uh, my gut health will suffer, and that's more likely to happen if I eat a fair bit of that food. And same if I was going to eat only one croissant, but do it every day. Same, same. 
over time, you're going to wear yourself down, you're more likely to react. So if you're reacting to a food and last time you ate that food, you didn't react, perhaps you've got a little bit of build up there. So just ask yourself, when's the last time I ate that food? Have I reached that, that tolerance now? Now, another one is that you may have multiple food sensitivities. Now, say if you're allergic or intolerant to, say, gluten and dairy, and say you haven't eaten the gluten for a while, this is your first croissant in three months, but you had a glass of milk or a tub of yogurt yesterday, then you may be more likely to react because, again, you've just hit that build-up point where you can't have any more of that food without having some sort of reaction or some sort of repercussions health-wise. So just again, have a look. Is there perhaps more than one food that you may be intolerant to? Maybe you have got multiple food sensitivities and just keep that in mind that it may not be just the thing you ate that was causing the trouble, just that one thing. Now, another one that I've seen around the traps that I'm not 100% sure if this is the same for everyone. In fact, I know it's not the same for everyone, but I have had people say that they can eat organic wheat and not have the same reaction as if they'd eaten conventional wheat that had pesticides sprayed on it. They're way more susceptible to the stuff that's got the chemicals on it. Now, you don't see that very often, but I have had people say that. I've also had other people say that when they go to Italy or France, they haven't had a reaction over there because maybe their wheat is grown in a different place. It's grown in a different way. Maybe they use less pesticides or different pesticides. I'm not sure. But there is a bit of a phenomenon that happens sometimes that when people have either the organic product or the product overseas in somewhere like France, that there can be a difference in your reaction. So yeah, if if you have to go to Paris to have that croissant, well, then you're going to have to get on a plane and go to Paris to have that croissant. Now, another one to look out for is whether your body is currently fighting other bugs. Like, is your immune system on high alert? Is there a bit of a, a bug going around the traps? Uh, are you run down? Have you already got a bit of a sore throat? Perhaps you're prone to tonsillitis and you can feel that it may be kind of just lurking in the background. And if that's the case, your immune system is probably already on high alert. Now, if your immune system's already on high alert and you're eating a food that you're intolerant to or allergic to, and that activates that immune system and even ramps up that high alert even more, well, then you're more likely to notice a reaction to that food. So if you are run down or if you are currently fighting off some sort of bug that's going around, that is not a good time to be eating foods that you suspect you're intolerant to because you are more likely to have a reaction. Another one to look out for is whether or not your stomach acid and enzymes are a bit higher or a bit lower that day. If you've got a problem there, then you're more likely to exacerbate the symptoms of the food intolerance because if your stomach acid's a bit low or your enzymes are a bit low, then you may not be able to process the food as easily as you usually do. And if that's the case, if there is an underlying food intolerance, then it is more likely to rear its ugly head. 
So they're just a few of the reasons to look out for. It is going to be different for everybody, but it is a little bit of food for thought, isn't it? That there are so many factors that can go into having a reaction to certain foods. And that's why, and I will talk about this a little bit later when it comes to testing, but that's why sometimes just eating the food and waiting for a reaction is not necessarily a good way to diagnose food intolerances. It is one way of discovering some of the the indications and perhaps it might give you a little bit of an indication as to whether that food is a problem, but it's definitely not a 100% accurate way of diagnosing yourself. So we'll go into how we do that a little bit later. But first of all, just to finish off uh, Demetra's question, also uh, I'd like to go through some symptoms to look out for. So if you are having a food intolerance, these are just a few of the things that you might notice happening in your body. So first of all is the obvious digestive symptoms. Now, a lot of people, they'll eat the food and within an hour or two, they will notice these sorts of things happening like bloating, constipation, diarrhea, really nasty gas, burping, nausea, uh, or even like a, a reflux. So there are lots of different digestive symptoms that you can get. Bloating's probably the most immediate and the most common, but that's not where it ends. So just because something doesn't affect your digestion, it doesn't mean that you don't have an intolerance to it. Perhaps you're one of those lucky people who get brain fog instead. You might be someone who produces a lot of snot and mucus in uh, reaction to eating that food. And that's usually because the immune system's kicking in and seeing that food as being a bit of a foreign invader and it's trying to clear out the lymphatic system. And so it produces more snot and more mucus. And that just means more trouble for your, you know, for your ears and for your sinuses and for your tonsils. Now, you might be one of those people that gets aches and pains. Now, I do see a lot of people who do have problems with gluten. They tend to get aches in the knees and aches in the back and aches in the neck and they get tension headaches and those sorts of things. Um, So if you're one of those people who gets a lot of aches and pains for seemingly no reason, then perhaps have a look at whether you have got a food intolerance. Likewise, if you break out a lot with your skin, skin breakouts are another sign of issues with food. So, and again, they might not happen straight away after eating the food. This might happen days after eating the food. So again, it it can be quite hard to connect the symptom to the food that you ate. If you ate the croissant on Tuesday and your skin breaks out on Thursday, you might be thinking, what did I eat on Wednesday? But it wasn't. It was something that you had earlier than that and it's just taking a while to to turn up as a skin breakout. So yeah, if you have skin conditions, uh, eczema, any sort of spots and pimples, those sorts of things. If you have psoriasis and it's one of those ones that flares up every now and again, you may want to look at food intolerances as as being something you want to investigate. Yeah, any sort of skin conditions, including things like fungal infections as well. If someone comes to me with candida or fungal infections, I always, always, always go back to looking at the food they're eating and whether they're reacting Also, some of other symptoms that you can see with food intolerances are things like poor immunity. So just overall poor immunity. 
people who get colds and flus more often, people who come down with everything. You know, those people go, they go, I just get everything that comes along every winter. Okay. Those people, I usually take them aside and I'm like, right, what are you eating? There's got to be something you're eating that's not agreeing with you. Also, people who've just got really poor energy or fatigue, uh, like I said earlier, you can have things like brain fog, but you can also have things like really massive energy slumps, especially in the afternoons, people who just hit the wall. It can be uh, combined with those aches and pains that I mentioned as well. So any of those overall fatigue type pictures, I usually get in and have a bit of a look at what they're eating again. You might take out the gluten and the dairy and see if they improve. And if they don't improve, we might dig a bit deeper and start testing for those specific foods that may be causing the food intolerances. Now, Demetra, I hope that's answered your question and I will go on to talk about testing because I've also got another question here from Mary and Mary says, are there any reliable tests available in Australia for food intolerances? And this is another one that I hear all the time. So yeah, this is uh, what I do as a naturopath. So I have two options that I usually do with my clients. Now, the first option is something called an elimination diet. And this is what we did before we had all the fancy schmancy blood tests available. So with the elimination diet, we would basically put you on the world's most bland diet that was very low allergenic, like really bland foods that were very unlikely to cause a reaction. So we might just have you on some rice and some veggies and some fish, some chicken, those sorts of things. And we would do that for a number of weeks until your symptoms improved. Now, once we've got that improvement of symptoms and we've cleared the slate, as you will, then we look at what sort of foods we can add back in. And very, very slowly, one by one, we start to add foods back into the diet and then we wait. So the first part where we have the, you know, the very, very just standard foods that aren't going to be likely to cause a reaction, that's the elimination part of the diet. And then when we start to add the foods back in, that's called a food challenge. And we don't ever add more than one food at a time because otherwise if you have a reaction, we wouldn't know which one caused the reaction. So it's a very slow process where we go, all right, here you go, have a banana and we wait a couple of days. Did you get a skin reaction? Did you have digestive issue? Yes? Okay, no banana for you. No? All right, carry on. In a few more days, we add something else and we build up and eventually we start adding in things that are more likely to cause the food intolerances like a piece of bread or some pasta or maybe a glass of milk and then we wait and we see, do you have a reaction? If you do have a reaction, what sort of symptoms are you having? And so that was the old way to test for food intolerances. And you can imagine, not only can it occasionally be a little bit hit and miss because we have to wait for those symptoms to turn up. The other thing is, is that we have to also rely on you, the client, being very, very, very strict with your diet and not even accidentally eating anything that's not on a list because otherwise we might end up back at square one. So it's a bit of a pain in the bum, that sort of diet. It can be effective when done properly. But nowadays, luckily, we have a better way. And that is 
the good old IgG, IgE antibody blood test. Now, what I do with my clients now is I send them away for a pathology test. So they get the blood drawn and that blood gets sent to the pathology lab. And then they test that blood for antibodies to 96 different foods. That's the most common one I do. There are other ones that where you can test for a few hundred foods, but they're super expensive. Like the 96 food one is expensive enough. That's about the $400 mark. And so again, I only really send people for these tests if we take them off gluten and dairy and they're still reacting to something. So because if, it, if it's just gluten or if it's just dairy or both, we may get a really, really awesome result just by taking them off those foods. But if we're not getting the result we want, this is when I send them for these antibody blood tests or what's called a food panel. And then we get a really beautiful big readout of all those 96 foods and which ones you're reacting to. And they even give you a scale of like one to five or one to six, I think it is, on how much you're reacting to each food. So if you're only reacting a little bit on that scale, you might be able to have that food occasionally. If you're reacting a lot, we take that food out. And that's what also goes back to what I was saying earlier about how often you eat the food and how much you're reacting. It might also depend on whether you react to that food a lot in the first place or not. So they're the options when it comes to testing. Um, Obviously, the blood tests aren't cheap, but sometimes it can be really good to get people over the line if they go, oh, look, I don't think I'm intolerant to that. And it's like, all right, let's test for it. Let's test for it. And if you come up positive, will you go off the food? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then it comes back in the red zone. It's like, hey, you really need to give this up for a while. And they're like, all right, then they're a lot more compliant. So it is really good at getting people over the line. Um, It's really good for motivation as well, because you can see that readout on paper. You can actually see, all right, this food is causing me a problem. And so it really helps to get your head around it sometimes too, doing these tests. Now, these tests are available through most naturopaths in Australia and some doctors do them as well. So it's just a matter of ringing up, asking people whether they do this IgG, IgE antibody blood test or food panel as it's sometimes called, and just asking around and seeing whether you can get that sort of thing. Um, There are plenty of practitioners, practitioners in Australia now who are doing it. The next question today comes from Catherine and she asks, what would your advice be for someone that suffers from hypothalamic amenorrhea and what would be the first thing you would tell this person to do to better their health? Now, that's an interesting one. So just first of all, um, I'll just back up and explain that hypothalamic amenorrhea is just a fancy word for um, a lack of periods or a lack of menstrual cycle um, that have got an involvement with the hypothalamus. Now, the hypothalamus produces messages that are sent to the pituitary, which then produces messages that are sent to the ovaries, and that's when ovulation and then the subsequent menstruation will take place. So there are things that can actually affect the hypothalamus. Um, It is quite sensitive to things. So First of all, when I see cases of hypothalamic amenorrhea, it's often in young girls and it's often in young girls that have lost weight very quickly and they will do so by either not eating enough food or overdoing it in the exercise department or quite often a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. So the first question I would be asking is, have you 
gone on a weight loss campaign recently? Have you set out to lose a lot of weight in a hurry? And have you done so by really cutting your calories or cutting your carbs or cutting your food in general or really increasing the exercise? So I might be asking some questions about whether you may be just overdoing that exercise a little bit. And again, quite often I'll see cases of this uh, particular issue in young female athletes. So girls who are really, really upping the exercise, but they have to because they have a particular goal in mind. So if that's not you, the next thing I would be looking at is your stress levels. Is this whole uh, cascade being kicked off by some sort of ongoing stress? Is that hypothalamus being affected and then not sending the messages to the pituitary because you're stressed? Is that what's going on? And if so, then we would definitely be addressing stress levels. We would be looking at ways to cope with stress or prevent the stress or ways of having the body being able to deal with the stress as well. So boosting up the nutrients that get used up when you're stressed and introducing herbs and supplements that help to nourish and support the uh, the nervous system throughout this time. Now, I have to add though that this is a condition that I would encourage you to go to your GP and or naturopath about, whoever you're most comfortable with, but you do need to see a health practitioner to manage this. Um, Sometimes with the GP, they can do some extra testing to make sure you don't have an underlying health condition like PCOS or something like that. Um, And then also you could go and see a naturopath about this because there are some wonderful herbs and supplements that we can give to balance hormones and to, like I said, to nourish and balance the nervous system and to help encourage that cycle to kick off in a healthy way again. So I hope that answers your question and thank you so much for bringing it up because it is something that we do see a lot in women, especially women who are sort of late teens, early 20s. So for those of you who've got daughters out there as well, it may be something to keep an eye out for there too. My next question today comes from Michelle and she asks, with gut health, what steps do you suggest to take? Now, as a naturopath, we have a little process that you may have heard of and we call it weed, seed and feed. You'll often hear naturopaths talking about it in those three stages. Now, we believe that those three stages are quite separate from each other and all need to be addressed in order for true gut healing to occur. And it's funny these days when it comes to gut health, I'll often see people talking about just one stage or just another stage. And that's great that they're taking some steps to heal the gut, but without all these three stages being done, then sometimes the gut issue can recur. It's more likely to come back. Um, Sometimes you haven't got rid of all the nasties out of there to begin with. So it's really important to look at all three of these stages and to make sure that you're doing something in each area. Now, first of all, the weeding stage. So the weeding stage is where we pull out all the bad guys. So we're removing things like the foods that may be causing your gut some trouble. So we remove the foods that are most likely to cause reactions in the gut. We take out things like gluten, dairy, and sugar. We take out anything that you we know that you're intolerant or allergic to. We take out the processed foods because we know they're not terribly good for your gut and we take out any chemicals and any nasties that may exacerbate an existing gut issue. 
We also look at using herbs and supplements to remove any parasites or things like bacterial candida overgrowth, anything like that that needs to be addressed. We may give some sort of um, supplement or herb for that. Now, that's the first stage. You can't start putting the good guys in if it's all crowded in there with all the bad guys. So we definitely need to make sure we clean that slate, that we do the weeding stage well and we do it properly so that then we can move on to stage two. And stage two is the seeding phase. Now, the seed phase is where we start to put all the beautiful, nourishing, soothing things in there that help to prepare the gut in order for good bacteria and everything to be pumped back in. So in the seeding phase, we look at things like prebiotics and things that heal the gut. So then we're looking at supplements like slippery elm, we're looking at aloe vera, perhaps some glutamine to heal up any areas of leaky gut that have occurred. Maybe this is a good time to put in some gelatin, which you would get either separately or as part of bone broth every day. And then we can even use herbs like turmeric uh, to bring down any inflammation in the gut. So during the seeding phase, it's really all about preparing the surface of the gut and making sure that it's nicely nourished, that it's healed up, that it's a happy place in order to grow your good bacteria again. And then and only then can the feeding stage really have an effect. So the feeding stage is sometimes the stage that people just go to straight away when they think about gut healing. So the feeding stage, we're talking about things like probiotics and good bacteria. Now that might be via a probiotic supplement. It may be fermented foods. So this is where we start to talk about things like sauerkraut. We start to look at things like kombucha and kefir and even some of the more out there fermented foods like that beetroot kvass and those sorts of things, uh, yogurts. But in my mind, I would still be avoiding dairy during that stage if you've got a dairy intolerance. So you might look at things like coconut yogurt instead. And so this feeding stage is all about putting the good guys back in. Now, those good guys can't really take shape and take hold in there if the weeding and the seeding phase haven't been done. So you can pump in all the probiotics you like. You can eat all the sauerkraut that you like. You can have all kinds of lovely good bacteria in there. But if the weeding hasn't been done and it's not a healthy area, then those good bacteria won't form colonies. And so quite often what you'll see is people who stuff themselves full of all these good bacteria and then on the days that they forget to take their probiotic supplement or on the days that they they run out of sauerkraut, those days they notice a difference quite quickly because there's no colonies sticking around. See, these good bacteria are actually designed to form colonies. They're designed to stick to the walls of the gut and actually set up camp and invite their little friends along and have a bit of a colony party. So what you're meant to have is these beautiful colonies of good guys in there that even if you don't pump more good bacteria in that day, 
those colonies will still be there chugging along. Now, if there's nowhere for them to stick, if there's nowhere nice for them to set up camp because you haven't done that weeding and you haven't done that seed stage, then they'll just get flushed out the other end. And if it's an expensive probiotic, that's what we sometimes call money down the dunny. And I think that can apply to your expensive sauerkrauts too these days. So probiotics and fermented foods are very, very important. They're a must. But if you find that the days you miss a dose or the days you miss having that kraut, that, you, that you're feeling worse, then that means we need to go back and we need to look at that weeding stage and look at that seeding stage. Have they been done properly? Do we need to go back there and address them again? Are the good guys still being crowded out by something in there that's a little bit overgrown? Have we still got a candida problem? Have we got some bacteria in there that we need to deal with? Do we need to cut down that gluten and that dairy and that sugar again for a while? Do we need to remove some processed foods? So... Just when you see those people who are just living on kombucha every day and they're like, oh my God, I'm healing my gut because I have so much kombucha, just know that that is only one of the three stages. And just because you're feeding yourself with all that good bacteria doesn't mean that it's going to stick around. So absolutely have some kombucha or better still, have some sauerkraut because kombucha, a lot of the commercial ones have a fair bit of sugar in them just quietly. So Please, if you're going to have kombucha, have a look at the label. Make sure that it's not just a, a bit of a fancy, expensive replacement for soft drink with a few bacteria thrown in. Uh, it, if you're making kombucha at home, it's probably going to be a lot lower in sugar than some of the commercial ones. But please, just check your labels, people. Make sure it's not just a bit of fancy sugar going on in your tummy because, you know, if you're going back to that weeding stage, we really should be avoiding the sugar anyway. So my recommendation is always the sauerkraut first because sauerkraut has got all the lovely bacteria but it's not produced using sugar and sometimes a probiotic supplement depending on your needs. So I hope that's made it a little bit more clear for you. These are the stages I would go through to to look at healing the gut and again, if someone's got parasites, bacterial overgrowth, those sorts of things going on, it is important to do some of this under the guidance of your practitioner because sometimes you'll need specific herbs or specific supplements that really address those nasties and get it all under control. And again, if you've had a gut issue for a very long time, if you've got some serious gut issues like irritable bowel or those sorts of things, it is sometimes very handy to do these sorts of processes under the guidance of a practitioner because they can tailor it to your exact needs. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. I really hope you found it helpful. And if you would like your question answered in the future, then just send me an email to hello at julesgalloway.com. Send me through your question and you never know, it may get featured very soon on Shiny Healthy You. Now, as usual, if you like what you've heard today, please show your support and give us a five-star rating on iTunes, subscribe, and tell your friends all about this show. If you'd like more health info, yummy recipes, and a free whole food recipe book, head to www.julesgalloway.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter. You'll see it just up the top of the website where it says, get your free whole food recipe ebook here. So until next week, stay shiny and bye for now. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.